in the book of Mark, and uh, let's go to the Lord and ask Him to uh, make our time together fruitful. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we just, we just come here this morning and just thank You. Thank You for being here. Thank You for being the Creator of everything that wanted and wants a relationship with us. Thank You for dying on the cross so that we could be reconciled to You. Thank You that through the power of Your Holy Spirit, You guide us, You transform us, to be more like you. Lord, and we ask that your work just would continue and that we would be willing participants in what you're doing in our lives, Lord, and what you're doing in the lives of those around us, that you would open our eyes to the, to the, to the work that you've prepared for us, that we would see it and that we would engage in it and that we would find joy in it. Lord, I pray that we would find joy in everything, as you've told us to rejoice always and to pray without ceasing and to all, in all things give thanks. And Lord, I know there are people in this congregation that are going through dark times that are hurting. But I know in you, they can find joy. I ask that your body would, would function exactly as your body is designed to and surround those who are hurting to lift them up, to encourage them and to help them through. Lord, I know there are those in this congregation that are rejoicing and that are just having just great things going on in their lives, and we thank you for that and ask that you help us come alongside and rejoice with them. Lord, as we study your word, I ask that it would do its work in us and that as we understand it more, we would live it. Lord, not that we would just Speak it on Sunday and come here and say amen and go out and do whatever we want during the week. But we would live for you, with you, and in you. Help us to understand what you have for us in this portion of Scripture and every portion of Scripture. And if there's anyone here who does not know you, Lord, I pray that they would have their questions answered this morning. I pray that if that doesn't happen through this teaching, that it would happen by them asking somebody, Lord, that they would realize the urgency that it is that they come to know you and the joy that they can have walking with you in life's ups and downs, in the difficult times and in the wonderful times. Inform us and transform us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark 9, starting in 14, going through 29. Let's read it together. And again, when I say together, I mean I'm going to read. You follow along. You don't need to read it out loud. Okay? And when they had come back to the disciples and saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them, and immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? 
How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has he this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it was often thrown, and it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that many of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. And when he had come into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. I want you to imagine, if you will, that you're an athlete. For some of you, that's easier to imagine than for others of us. But you're an athlete. It doesn't matter what sport. But you're an athlete, and you're being recruited by a highly anticipated coach. People are high on this coach. This coach is amazing and expected to win championships. Expected to do so many great things, and he's recruiting you. But there's a catch. If you sign on with this coach, you don't get to leave. You don't get to be free agent. You don't get to contract negotiation with somebody else. You're with the coach for the long term. And you've got to sign on before the season starts. Well, the season, the first practices start happening, the coach is there, and he spends a good part of the first part of, of, of preseason convincing you of what a wonderful coach he is. You're seeing things that just amaze you. His, the way he teaches and the things he teaches are just incredible to you. It's unlike any coaching you've ever heard before, and you are so excited about the prospects man, this coach is going to be good. We are going to go out and crush it. And you're ready to sign on. And then the coach tells you that, you know what? You're going to become the best athlete you can possibly be. But in order to do that, my system requires that you lose for a while. There will come a time when you win and over time, it's going to be, again, you're going to be the best you can be. But my system requires that you lose for a while. As a matter of fact, it's going to be so bad, it's going to look so ugly, that as the coach, I'm going to get fired. But don't worry, after a while, I'm going to come back, and we're going to win that championship. What do you do? What do you do? Do you sign on with the coach, or do you go somewhere else? Well, that's exactly 
the situation, well, not exactly, it's a metaphor, not a perfect one, but it's close to the situation that the disciples find themselves in as we're going through this journey with the disciples through Mark. And as we've talked about for the last couple weeks, you know, the first half of Mark is Jesus showing the disciples who he is, right? Until finally in Mark 8, in Mark chapter 8, uh, verse 28, Sorry, in, in uh, verse 29, he gets the, them to say, you are the Christ. They've acknowledged who he is, right? Woohoo! We got the Messiah, and we're convinced he's the Messiah. And then look at Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be <coughs> rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and killed and after three days, rise again. Woohoo! We found the Messiah. Oh boy. Messiah is going to die. He's telling us he's, he's going to die. He's telling us he's gonna, we're going to lose. He's not crushing the Romans like we thought. It's not this great championship victory that we thought. He's telling us he's going to die and rise again. So that's the context of the passage that we're in now. Oh, goody, he's the Messiah. Oh, no. He's teaching us something different. So last week, we looked at the Mount of Transfiguration. And this week, we're looking at this exorcism. The disciples' failure and Jesus' success and his chastisement of his disciples. And as we look at this, we see three biblical principles that we're going to see kind of through the rest of Mark, but he really brings them out here. And what I think he's doing is he said, hey, who am I? And they say, we're the, I'm the Messiah, or you're the Messiah. And he says, great, guess what? The Messiah is not what you thought it was. So the second half of Mark is, hey, the first half is, who is Jesus? The second half of Mark, as we've said before, is what does that mean? What does it mean that he's the Messiah? And he's got to change their thinking. So in Mark 8.31, he tells them that he's going to die. Look at Mark 9.31. We're not going to get there this morning, but look at that. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Almost exactly what Mark 8.31 says. Not word for word, but it's the exact same concept. So this passage between the transfiguration and what we're looking at today, we've got Jesus, hey, you're the Messiah, but I'm going to be killed. And then we've got this, these passages. And then, oh, by the way, yeah, I'm the Messiah, and I'm going to be killed. So what's he doing in the interim? And I'm telling you, he's encouraging his disciples. Okay, he's telling them, yes, I'm going to die, but I want you to be encouraged. Because although it's going to be difficult, I'm going to teach you some things through this. And the first thing he's going to teach them is that meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Then he's going to teach them that our failures, in other words, he, tells, he says to the disciples, your failures, and we can take that as our failures, in no way impugn the power of God. Okay, Because we fail, that means nothing about the power of God. Okay, And then the third thing he's going to teach them is that God calls us to a life of ongoing belief. And these principles build on each other. So the time I take is going to build on each other. The first principle, weakness and not, is not weakness, we're going to go through fairly quickly. The second principle, we're going to take some more time on. Our failures in no way impugn God's power. 
And then we're really going to camp out on the third one. Okay? God calls us to a life of ongoing belief, ongoing faith, because I think that's really the main point of the passage that we're looking at this morning in Mark 9, 14 through 29. So again, man, I'm glad you realize the Messiah, he's telling them. The Messiah is going to die, die and rise again. But be encouraged. Okay? Be encouraged. Because what, he see, what we saw last week and looked at is the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Be encouraged. Meekness is not weakness. And three of the disciples, James, John, and Peter, saw him in his glory on the mount, right? Wider than any, as Chris, Chris talked about, wider than any launderer could make it. He is glowing. And then the voice of God says, this is my son in whom I'm all pleased. Listen to him. Right? Listen to him. I see his glory, and then I hear God declaring his power and glory. So yes, I'm going to die, but take heart because, man, you see him in power. You've seen him in power. But the other nine disciples weren't there, right? And remember what Jesus told the three. He said, don't say anything until after the Son of Man has risen. Until after I've risen, basically, don't say anything about this. So the other nine don't get the privilege of that. They're going to get taught through our passage today that, hey, just because Jesus is dying doesn't mean that he's weak. Weakness is not, or meekness is not weakness. In other words, Jesus is going to the cross not because Jesus doesn't have the power to avoid the cross, but he's going to the cross because that's God's plan to reconcile sinners to himself. It has nothing to do with his power. He is not defeated by the world because he goes to the cross. As a matter of fact, that's the plan. That's why he came, so that he could do that. And he's got to teach his disciples, who remember the Jewish people were taught from early age that when Messiah comes, he's going to wipe out the Romans for us. He's going to be a military, political leader. He's going to, we're going to have victory. Because they're looking to the end kingdom. They missed what God was doing in the shorter term. But Jesus came not to do that, but to die on the cross so we could be reconciled to him. Peter, two great sermons from Peter in Acts 2, 23 through 3, 26. Go read those later. He explains it way better than I could. Okay? So Jesus is, uh, meekness is not weakness. Jesus is not going to the cross because he's weak, because the world has defeated him. He's going there because he's completely in line with God's plan, with the Father's plan. Obviously, Jesus is God, so he knows he's in line with it, okay? And he let, the, he let some of the disciples see his, his power unveiled on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he's going to show today the other disciples that he still has power. Just because he's going to the cross doesn't mean he's weak. Let's look at that real quick. So they come down, and we find out in verse 18, 918, that I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. So the disciples are having difficulty. Because of that, in verse 9.22, we have the Father, and we're going to look at this in just a little bit, but he says, if you can do anything, take pity and help us. So because of the disciples' weakness, people are wondering if God can do this anymore. And God shows them, yes, I can. He says, if I can, or if you can, because they ask if you can, he says, all things are possible to him who believes. And then through 25 through 27, we see that he tells 
the deaf, he says, the deaf, you deaf, dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And what does the spirit do? Comes out of him. Doesn't enter him again. Jesus' meekness, the fact that he's going to the cross, does not mean he's weak. He still has all the power that he showed in the first eight chapters of Mark. He still has the power to calm the storms. He still has the power to cure sickness. He still has the power to throw out demons. His meekness, the fact that he's going to the cross, doesn't mean he's weak. He still cast out the demon. Again, he's going to the cross because that's God's plan. God wanted that relationship with us. He loves us so much that he's willing to die on the cross for us as God incarnate. His power is purposely controlled right now. Purposely veiled. So the world may see it as weakness. The Romans and the Jewish leaders thought it was weakness. But we can't make that mistake. And the disciples can't make that mistake. And they're not really going to understand this until after they see him resurrected, right? They are wondering. Man, once he, once he dies on the cross, they are wondering what is going on. And it's not until they see him resurrected that they are completely changed. And that's when they realize his meekness was not weakness. He is not weak. He is powerful. And they become bold and go out there when they finally get this through our, their brains. We need to have this through our brains so that we can be bold so that we can live the Christian lives that he's called us to do. Because Jesus is not weak because he went to the cross. He was meek. His power was controlled. We will see. It'd be nice if we were here. It could be tomorrow. It could be today. It could be before I get done, in which case you'd be lucky. But uh, <laughs> you'd be fortunate. But he's going to come back in power, right? He, the, when he comes back, his power will no longer be veiled. Okay? It will be obvious to everybody. But for now, his meekness is not weakness. And because his weakness, we can sometimes see, uh, we, we sometimes think, or because he's meek, we sometimes think that that's weak. And when we see ourselves fail, when we see other Christians fail, we think, well, God's just weak. Is God not strong enough? So that leads us to our second point, that our failures in no way impugn God's power. Okay, in no way impugns God's power. No matter how many times we fail, God is still God. Okay, but realistically, the world looks at Jesus through us oftentimes, right? How many people have you heard that have problems with God because they have problems with a Christian or somebody who claims they're a Christian? That's a huge mistake that the world makes. Okay? It's a huge mistake we can make sometimes. We can see something happen in somebody's life or some, a failure of a Christian or something. We can see something go wrong and we go, wow, is God really powerful? We can have something happen in our lives and we go, is God powerful enough? He didn't do what he was doing. But our failures in no way impugn his power. Our failures are our failures. Okay? And we need to not make the mistake, and the world needs to not make the mistake of thinking that because we fail, God isn't powerful. And that's what he's kind of teaching them. That's the second point here. Let's take a look at that. In Mark 9, 18, like we said, that this, I brought it to your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. The di disciples had cast out demons before. Why can't they do it now? Why can't they do it now? Is this demon just too much for them? Did, did Jesus only give them a little bit of power to cast out demons? I only gave you power to cast out minor demons, but major demons you can't do. Well, there's no evidence of that. Remember when he sent them out, if you turn back to, to, to Mark 6, 
12 and 13. He said, And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick, sick people and healing them. They had no problem before. Why are they having a problem all of a sudden with this one? Is it because of the type of demon that it is? Or is there something else going on? Well, many people think it's because of the type of demon. I tell you, I'm going to tell you, I think there's something else going on. Okay, I think there's something else going on here. So let's observe the text together and see if we can figure out what's going on. So they can't do it. In 919, what does Jesus say? They couldn't cast it out, and he answered and said to them, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. He talks about their belief. Seems to indicate that it's a belief problem. 9.22, the disciples' failure makes the man doubt Jesus. And the man says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. So because the disciples failed, the man makes the same mistake I just said we can't make and the world shouldn't make. Because the disciples failed, they look at Jesus and say, uh-oh, he's not powerful enough to do this. I wonder, all of a sudden, I wonder if he's powerful enough to do that. Contrast that man's thought, hey, if you can do anything, please have mercy on us and help us. Contrast that to the leper back in Mark uh, 1 in verse 40, where the leper says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Right? The leper had no doubt that Jesus had the power. He only wondered if, if, if Jesus would be willing. Whereas this man doesn't really worry about God's willingness, he's doubting Jesus' power because the disciples failed. But as we'll see, our failures in no way impugn God's power. And Jesus answers him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And we'll get to that later. As the man cries out, I do believe, help my unbelief. Man, that's cry probably of every believer throughout all the ages. I do believe. Help my unbelief. And we'll look at that when we get to our third point. 9, 25 through 27, as we've already seen, Jesus had no problem casting it out. You deaf, dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not go into him again. And it listens to him. He's got the power. 9, 28. The disciples say, when they had come into the house, question him, why could we not cast it out? Why couldn't we do it? And I think that gives us a clue as to what's going on here. 929, Jesus gave them an answer. And this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. He gives them an answer. But what does that answer mean? That's what we're going to look into. But first, we've got to deal with a translation issue. That kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. How many people's Bibles say that kind cannot come out by anything but prayer and fasting? Anybody have that translation here? Prayer and fasting. Nobody else does. Okay. So what's the problem here? Is our, just throw the Bible out because it's unreliable? Get rid of it? The translators can't even agree on what the, the passage is supposed to say. 
Well, we don't have the autograph. Everybody understands we don't have the original copies that the disciples wrote, right? I personally think that's a good thing, just my opinion, because if we had the originals, they'd be in a, in a cathedral somewhere and we'd be worshiping them. Uh, so I think it's good that we don't have them. Uh, and we have, uh, you know, what we have is, is very reliable, but there are some places that are problems. And unbelievers that, that want to have an excuse for unbelieving will bring up these places that are a problem, that there are some issues, and it's good for you and I to be informed about what the issues are so that, that we're not taken in by that. So we're going to spend a little bit of time discussing the translation issue real quick. So let's go to a parallel passage. Matthew 17. Let's see, Juan, I think your Bible did not have prayer and fasting, correct? It just said prayer? Can you read Matthew 17, 21 for me? Yep. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Ask a simple question. Read Matthew 17, 21. Okay, if your Bible does not say prayer and fasting, guess what? Matthew 17, 21 is not in your Bible. Okay, because Matthew 17, 21 says, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Okay, if your Bible translation said prayer and fasting, then you could have read Matthew 17, 21 for me, no problem. But if you'll note in your Bible, if, if you have Matthew 17.21, there's probably a note that says this is not in all manuscripts. And if you don't have it, there's probably a note somewhere on the page that says some manuscripts say prayer and fasting. This, this, you know, some, some manuscripts have Matthew 17.21. So what's going on here? Well, exactly what it says. Some manuscripts have those words and some don't. So how do we know which one is correct? Well, I'll tell you, we cannot be 100% sure, okay? As, is the, as, as you can see from some translating, translating committees, when they make the decision, they think, well, we think this is legitimate, we're going to leave it in. And a lot of them say, even if it's not a legitimate, we'd rather have something in there that, that's maybe disputed than take out something that God actually said. And other translation committees say, we don't think that those are, uh, were part of the original, so we're not going to put them in there, Okay. But the question is, does it matter? And I'm going to tell you, no, I don't think it matters. Okay, I'm going to give you my opinion. My Bible has them in there and has the note that says that they're probably not authentic. Okay, um, I think that that's probably right, that they're not authentic. And I'm going to tell you why. Okay, You can study it more in depth. You can look at it all you want and come up with your own decision. And we're going to get to here in a little bit that I don't think it really matters which way it is. It doesn't change anything doctrinally. Uh, but there's a couple, we're not going to go too deep into, into hermeneutics, but there's a couple of, of basic translation um, uh, principles, I'll say hermeneutic principles that, that we should know. There's a bunch of them. I'm just going to talk about three of them. Uh, one of them is that the earlier the man's manuscript is, so the closer the manuscript was uh, to, to the actual original, probably the more accurate it is. And that just makes sense. You know, things can get messed up over time. And I'll tell you, in that case, this passage is split because of the early manuscripts, they're about half have it and half don't have it. Okay, So that doesn't help us a whole lot. 
Another principle is the number of manuscripts. Okay, the more manuscripts that have a certain reading, the more likely translators are to say, hey, that's probably the actual reading. Because you've got to realize there are thousands and thousands of manuscripts of the Bible, and they agree in about, I don't know what the actual percentage is, but it's probably like 99.5% of everything they are in complete agreement of. Okay, but of the number of manuscripts, more manuscripts say prayer and fasting and have Matthew 17, 21 than not. So that uh, would go on that side of the scale. Uh, another principle is that the shorter reading is generally better, okay? The shorter reading is generally more accurate because it's easier for a scribe to add something to the, to, to the Scripture than it is for him to take it away. He can just add, a, a, you know. It says, this time only comes out by prayer. I'm just going to add and add fasting because the rabbi I'm sitting under or the teacher I'm sitting under says that fasting is really important, so I'm going to add that there. And then it gets every time that copy gets copied, it gets copied again, 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 again. So they say generally the shorter reading is the more accurate reading because nothing has been added. Uh, and in that case, obviously, goes in favor of it just saying prayer, not prayer and fasting. But those translation principles really aren't going to help us because it's kind of 50-50. You know, six in one, half dozen in the other. How do we make up our mind? I'll tell you, I have decided, again, this is just my opinion, and, and, and I'm just kind of letting you go through the thought process that we go through as we, as we study and that you should go through as you study. My opinion is that it only says, that the originals only said prayer. And the primary reason I think that is because of Mark um, 2. Okay, in Mark 2, when... The people come and ask Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? You remember what he tells them? He tells them they can't fast while the bridegroom is still with them, right? The attendants don't fast while the bridegroom is with them. So I think it would be very odd for Jesus to give them that teaching. You're not going to fast while the bridegroom is with you. And then later chastise them for not fasting to cast out a demon. Okay, because he's already told them, hey, we're not fasting. It was not their practice with Jesus' disciples to fast. Because the bridegroom was with them. It's a happy time. It's not a time to fast. Okay, the bridegroom is there. So I think that, that just prayer and not adding fasting is probably the correct reading. But I'm also going to tell you I don't think it makes a big difference. Okay, and there are people out there, teachers out there that will disagree with me. Okay, because people make entire, uh, they use these passages to make entire, or to, to help with a doctrine of fasting. And I'd say anytime you have a disputed passage, it's not good to base your doctrine on a disputed passage. Okay, as we're going to see in three years when we get to the very end of Mark, there's an entire ending of Mark that is disputed. Okay, not good to make your doctrine based on disputed passages. Okay, so I don't think you should make this, uh, doctrine based on this disputed passage, but I don't even think that it matters. And that's what I want to look at now, because I think whether it says prayer or prayer and fasting, Jesus is saying the exact same thing to the disciples, okay? And I think that because he's not given us a recipe for exorcism here. This is not a two-step process for exorcism, okay? That's not what Jesus is doing here. Because look, we observe the text. What did he, when they asked, when, or when they, initially the man said, your disciples could not cast it out, what did he chastise them for? Unbelieving. When the man said, if you can do anything, Jesus said, if you believe, all things are possible to who, who believes. Believing, believing. Now he gets to the end and all of a sudden they say, why couldn't we cast it out? And he says, well, it only comes out by prayer. Well, what's going on here? 
Is it believing or is it prayer? Is it faith? What's going on here, Jesus? Let's look at, if you're still in Matthew, great. If not, you can turn there real quick if you want to. I'm going to read it so you don't have to. Matthew 17, the parallel passage. Starting at 14, he says, And when they came to the, multi- or came to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and very ill, and he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered, O believing and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Almost identical to 919. Right? But then let's go on. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Matthew 20, 17, 21, for those of you who don't have it. But this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. So again, in Matthew, he answers the question. We get the more complete answer to the question. Jesus tells them, it's your belief because of the littleness of your faith. But this time, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. So how are prayer slash prayer and fasting? I'm just going to say prayer for the rest of the time, just for the record. How, are, how is prayer related to our faith? Is it just a formula? Is it as simple as the disciples should have just gone, Lord, help me cast out this demon, and then go, whoop, the demon gets cast out because this type comes out by prayer. Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, I don't think so. Well, Steve, why don't you think so? Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus, from, from reading your scripture and your knowledge of the scripture, do you think Jesus is the type of leader who leads by example, or is he the type of leader that says, do what I say, not what I do? Leads by example. I would agree with you. I think in the scripture we see he is an example, and the apostles are the same way. They lead by example, although they're not perfect like Jesus was. So they do make mistakes. So I think Jesus leads by example. So I don't think he's given a formula here because he doesn't do the formula that he told them. If it is a formula, he says this type only comes out by prayer. There's no indication that he said a prayer before he cast out the demon. No indication whatsoever. We do have indications of things like that other places in Scripture. In Nehemiah, when the king asked him a question, he said, I need to say a prayer real quick and he and the scripture tells us he said a prayer and asked god for wisdom before he answered the king for those of you who were for here first service i misspoke in first service and said ezra ezra and nehemiah are very close together but nehemiah is that who actually in the scripture says the prayer so again i'm not infallible okay jesus is infallible all right there's no indication that jesus said a prayer so what is he saying he has linked it he said belief, belief, and then he says, hey, you got to say a prayer. Well, I think if we take that in context and look at that and observe that and think about that a little bit, what we'll see is that there was no re- reason for Jesus to say a prayer because Jesus lived a life of prayer. 
What Jesus is telling the disciples is that you have to abide in God. You have to be living a life of prayer, that relationship close, in order to have that power. You see, I think what's happened here is the disciples have mistakenly think when, God, when Jesus gave them the power, that it was now their power. Guess what? God gave me the power to cast out demons. As a matter of fact, in the parallel passage, uh, when they come back from casting out the demons, they're all like, whoop, whoop, even the demons listen to us in your name. You know, they're all excited about it. And Jesus says, don't, don't rejoice that the demons listen to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Okay, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. They're all excited about it being their power. Hey, look at this power that God gave us. And that's easy for us to do. If something happens, if we do things, it's very easy for us to think that it's our power. But it's not. It's God's power. You see, if it's our power, a couple of things can happen. If we think it's our power, then we can go, well, if it's my power, I get to use it how I want to use it. All right? And if I just had that genie in a bottle, I get to use it how I want to use it if it's my power. But it's not my power. It's God's power. The other thing is, if it's my power, I will doubt that it's sufficient. Or I can doubt that it's sufficient. Because, you know, I may think it's my power, but I really don't know it's power. I'm like, okay, demon, be gone? In a kind of questioning way, because if this is my power, I don't know if, I, if my power is sufficient. It's God's power. And because it's God's power, our failures in no way impugn the power of God. Our failures are our own. It makes me think of the passage in Acts, and you can turn there if you want, Acts 19. It kind of makes me chuckle. That's probably sin in me, the fact that I chuckle at these, these poor guys. Um, the seven sons of Siva. You're... If you've read your Bible, it'll be a familiar passage with you. But starting in 1911, you can read later, earlier, if you want to get more context. But it basically says, and God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So Paul was performing miracles? Well, yes, but that's not what the scripture says. Okay, Paul was performing miracles, but the scripture tells us what's behind that. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. It's God's power. And it goes on and says, So that handkerchiefs or, air, or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Man, Paul didn't even have to be there. Just a handkerchief. Man, I blow my nose, and I give it to somebody, and it touches them, and their diseases are, are, are cured. You know, that's the power of God. You know, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. In 13 it says, But also some of the Jewish exorcists, who went from, the place, from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. They were trying to use the formula. Well, Jesus said, all you got to do is pray. So I adjure you by Jesus who Paul preaches that you have to leave. They're trying to use the exorcism formula. How does it work out for them? Not too good. This is the part that makes me chuckle. The demon says, then the evil spirits in 15, and the evil spirits answered them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Uh-oh. 
Then the demon proceeds, I'll just paraphrase, you can read it if you want, proceeds to beat the snot out of them and, 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 and kicks them out naked. So there's seven of them, and the one demon beats them all up and casts them out naked. That's what happens if you're trying to do the formula. That's what happens if you're not prayerfully abiding with Christ. Why did Jesus not have to pray? Because he's constantly living a life of prayer. And you go, well, Steve, well, he was God. Well, yes, he was God. So why would he have to pray? Yet scripture shows us over and over again that Jesus went off to pray, that Jesus went to be with the Father, that he wanted to live in that relationship and he had to live in that close relationship and that he would, he would say, I don't teach anything except what comes from the Father. I don't do anything except what the Father wants me to do. He had that constant close relationship. So he didn't need to say a formulaic prayer before casting out the demon because the power was there for him to use. The disciples, Jesus is telling them, you, you were thinking you could do it on your own. Your belief is bad, your belief is bad, your belief is bad, and oh, by the way, this one only comes out by prayer. In other words, your prayer life shows your belief. Your constantly being in prayer and abiding in the Father shows your belief. One writer put it this way, he said, one cannot get ready for the moment by quickly uttering a special prayer. One has to be ready for the moment through a powerful prayer life. We have to be abiding in God because the power is not ours. And because the power is not ours, that's why the power of God is not impugned by our failures. The disciples failed to cast it out, but God is encouraging them. Even though I'm going to die, I still have the power to do this even though you don't. And oh, by the way, why can't we cast it out? Because you're not abiding with God. Your, your belief is not where it ought to be. John 15, we get te Jesus teaches us this more in depth in John 15. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but you're familiar with the passage. It's the vine uh, and the branches passage. And specifically in John 15, 4 through 5, he kind of gets at the heart of this. And that's why I said these principles are not just in this passage. He teaches them throughout Mark, and we see him taught throughout the rest of the, of the Gospels too when he's telling his disciples, what does the fact that the Messiah is going to die mean? What does that look like? And he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. And then listen to the last part of that. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Folks, in our Christian life, apart from him, we can do nothing. Now, can I do something? Sure, but I can't do anything for him apart from him. I can go get something to eat, but I can't do anything for him apart from him. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The disciples failed to cast out the demon because they're not walking intimately with God at that point. They had not completely surrendered themselves to God. Have we? I think they have a much better excuse than we do. They were still learning this, right? This is very early after he said, yeah, I'm the Messiah, but guess what? I'm going to die and I'm going to raise again. And they're like, oh, what? How can that be? It's very early. They're learning. We have the entirety of Scripture. We have the entire example of their lives. We have the entire example of Christians throughout history. 
that we can look at, yet we still don't completely surrender to God and abide in him. They failed to cast out the demon because they were not walking intimately with God. But again, Jesus had no problem doing it. So our failures in no way impugn God's power. We bear fruit as we abide in Jesus. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And that concept needs, leads naturally to our final principle from this passage. Okay, Our final principle of this passage is that God calls us to a life of ongoing belief. The father asked him in 22, if you can do anything, take pity on us. And he says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. All things are possible to him who believes. Oh, what an amazing promise of God. What an amazing promise that we can stand on, God. But on the other side, oh, what damage has been done with verses like this and others by men, by teachers who don't care about handling the word of God correctly. They misuse a verse like this and the damage that has been done through the ages and is being done in our culture today is enormous. So let's look at that together next week. All right? We're going to get there next week because we don't have time to do it this morning. Okay, so come back next week, and we're going to delve into this, all things are possible to him who believes. And again, we're going to observe the scripture together. We're going to study the scripture together to see what that means, what Jesus means. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the way it instructs us, transforms us, encourages us chastises us, admonishes us, brings us closer to you, and helps us deal with all of our relationships. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that thrives because we are continually in relationship with you. Relationship through prayer. Relationship through reading of your word. Relationship through fellowship of the saints. Lord, we want to be your people. Help us to go out from this place and walk in the manner that you've called us to walk. As our trail life, trail mental learning, to walk worthy, to walk worthily of what you've done for us, what you did for us on the cross, what you continue to do through us, for us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, may we never think that you're the magic genie, but know that you are our Lord and our Savior, the creator of everything, and you want us to walk with you. Thank you. Help us to do that. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.